0: Welcome back to The Host Dispatch. I'm your co-host, Claire Bowman. And today, Anar and I are chatting with our publisher, Joe, about an incredibly spooky anthology titled The Women of Weird Tales, published by Valancourt Books. The Women of Weird Tales is the second book featured in their Monster She Wrote series, which resurrects fiction written by women who were pioneers in the speculative and horror genres. This volume includes 13 fantastic tales originally published between 1925 and 1949 by four of Weird Tales magazine's most prolific female contributors, Gray Laspina, Everell Worrell, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, and Eli Coulter. These stories ranged from science fiction to fantasy to horror, with tales of mad scientists, deadly curses, vampires, and more in a thrilling collection. We hope you're having a very spooky October, and as always, thanks for listening.
1: We look like gothic twin sisters. Oh, yeah. We look yeah. like if Stevie Nicks needed some bookish backup dancers.
0: That's our missed calling.
1: <laughs> One day, Joe came in in a black shirt and black pants, and we looked like we were in a in a band.
0: Maybe that should be our look for AWP Philly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just like a gothy. Host goes goth. You know... I was talking to Kelsey Williams, we're doing this like, like a writing challenge where we're writing genre and like, you know, October spooky things. We're writing about, you know, vampires and werewolves and witches and everything in between. And we were like, maybe we could just be spooky all year round. Like maybe this is just who we are. And Mm -hmm. I need to stop resisting. It's okay to think about vampires in April. It's absolutely
0: fine. You have <laughs> you have our permission, and our Thank you. To think about vampires all year round. Thank hey, you. Hey, we did spooky books at Christmas last year, didn't we? Yeah,
2: we did. We did a little horror books.
0: <gasps> that is true. Yeah. yeah, I think one way to like infuse your life with a little bit of that all year round is to read this genre fiction, whatever the genre may be. Um, yeah. I just dabbled in the introduction of this book that Joe lent me, A Century of Weird Fiction, 1832 to 1937. And um, I realized how little I actually know about any of this in reading that introduction because it's kind of scholarly. And it was describing the difference between, from the author's perspective, the difference between gothic fiction and weird fiction. And of course, there's not just like one stark, you know, stark line that they're on either side of. There's some intermingling between the two genres, but then there's other genres apart from that too, like horror and thriller and ghost stories. There's so many different types of what I have been thinking of as like the same genre, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I d- I definitely don't know how to delineate all of them, but I think reading a little bit from from those genres all year round would be a really fun project. Yeah. Maybe we could learn something.
2: (laughs) I think so. I I really enjoy, you know, I read, uh, I was reading Clarice Lispector for the uh, book club at Malvern. And, you know, after about 10 or 20 pages of Clarice Lispector, I needed to pick up some genre fiction, just read something I could understand.
0: (laughs) genre fiction is so satisfying. Didn't you find these stories really satisfying our when when you were reading this?
1: Yeah, and I kind of wonder if it's because there is maybe a structure that is like innate. We watch uh, horror films and we tell ghost stories around the campfire and we kind of know what to expect, mm-hmm. but I mean, as we're going to talk about today, like these women that we read for today are masters of the craft. And so there's, you know, you don't expect any of it, but you're very pleased by it. Mm -hmm. I do want to mention over the summer, I started watching actual like scary, scary movies with the Paramount's classic film series. And I think one of the most satisfying things about scary films that I hadn't allowed myself to feel is like, I can feel anxiety that isn't just what my body generates while I'm crossing a street. (laughs) And it's really satisfying to be like, oh, this fear that I feel is completely man-made and in the comfort of this beautiful theater. And I wonder if maybe when we're reading horror stories or spooky stories, if maybe that kind of satisfies other people's need for like taking their anxiety and fear outside of themselves and onto like a reading
0: experience right i think it makes sense to channel your anxiety and fear that already exists into something that's not real so then the stakes are gone all of a sudden and then you can kind of maybe laugh it off afterwards Um, I don't know because I don't really get it because I don't like to be scared. These stories don't scare me, yeah. so it's fun to me because I just I can get a little creepy feeling, but I don't get really scared because I don't like that.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They get under your skin a little bit, they're surprising and you know they're eerie, but there's nothing mm-hmm. in here that scares me. It's like, you know, yeah, if this were happening to me, if I were out on a canal and seeing a ghost or being taken to the moon or something like that, I would be terrified. But I'm like, no, that's not me. It's not going to happen to me, but it's cool to read about. Yeah.
0: So I guess I'll introduce our book. Um, okay. <laughs> we are here to talk about the women of weird tales which are short stories by the writers Averill Worrell, Eli Coulter, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, and Gray Laspina. Um, this book is published by Valancourt Books, and it is the second book featured in their Monster She Wrote series, which resurrects fiction written by women who were pioneers in the speculative and horror genres. So according to Valancourt Books, speculative and horror are the genres that this book covers, even though they're called weird tales. So I guess the question for me still stands: Is a weird tale its own genre?
1: Yeah, wasn't Weird Tales a magazine?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and I wonder how they they describe that themselves.
0: Um. So Weird Tales was a magazine launched in 1923. It was a pulp magazine, and they did publish. You know, they they are known for having women writers from the first issue they had women published in the magazine, but they're most well known for being associated with writers like H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith.
2: Yeah, and that's that's what I thought, you know, when we were talking about the title of the book. I thought it was, you know, just basically these women authors that are in the book were published in Weird Tales. But right. Weird Tales, it's it is interesting to think about what that means because what's the difference between a weird tale? Is it a ghost story? Mm-hmm. Is it a zombie story? Is it a vampire story? Because all of those are represented in this book. So yeah. it's you know, uh, a pretty wide arc.
0: Yes, definitely. Here's my conclusion based on my limited research, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't think Weird Tales the Magazine was trying to... I don't think at that point a weird tale was its own genre. I think it has Mm -hmm. become a genre. Um, I believe that scholars like Jonathan Newell, who wrote this book that Joe lent me, A Century of Weird Fiction, 1832 to 1937, He, in his introduction, is making an argument for weird fiction as its own thing, as far as I can tell. And something that I thought was cool that he mentioned in in terms of how he thinks about the weird tale is a tale that disgusts the reader and thereby kind of disrupting your sense of reality. Mm -hmm. Um, Because things that disgust us are like out of the ordinary in some way. And then also things that deal with the metaphysical. So there's this kind of like body and brain combination. Monsters are really common. And I think that's what weird tales seem to be sort of based on are monsters, because they're both meant to be taken as real in the context of the story. It's not like fantasy where there's a whole different world that's being created. It's the real world, but the monster lives in it. And so it's a disruption Mm -hmm. of reality
2: yeah it's it's like you know in a ghost story or a zombie story you're crossing over from what we experience as everyday life to life after death and life after death coming back to what we think of as life and the two intermingling in a way that you don't expect them to you know there's one story that uh, was in here that we're not talking about. It was called the, uh, the Deadly Theory. And in that, it's about raising somebody back to life from ashes. And, uh, you know, the hopes are really good. But, of course, it goes wrong. It goes wrong. <laughs> when you cross things over from one realm to the other, it never works, especially if you're trying to control it, it never works out right.
1: You lose a little bit mm-hmm. of that Yeah, you lose of a little that bit.
0: information. Um.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I think it's really interesting, too, to think about science as playing a role in some of these stories, certainly in mine. And yes. there's a bit of science fiction. I, I feel like maybe this is like precursor to science fiction. So perhaps mm-hmm. these genres aren't really all that different from each other. They just have been like they changed the name over time based on the era that it was written in. Because science fiction is the thing of like the 70s and 80s,
2: right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say I know, but, you know, what's considered the golden age of science fiction starts in the 40s and stuff like that out of these magazines. I think out of Amazing Tales and things like that. You know, that's where you first get Isaac Asimov and those mm-hmm. core writers who started writing what we think of as science fiction today. So these, these stories, like my story, which is The Curse of the Song, it was written in 1928. And, mm-hmm. you know, these stories were mostly written in the 20s and things like yeah. that. So uh, that's, that's before, you know, that, that kind of pulp science fiction started happening.
0: And then, you know, in the eighteen hundreds I know that the ghost story was that was mm-hmm. the thing. And then oh, yeah. we had Mary Shelley with her Frankenstein monster and I wanna read more of this book, Joe, that you let me it's pretty dense. It's actually very scholarly. It's, it's a
2: scholarly book.
0: Um, and I'm interested in that, in like taking a, a scholar's approach to looking at the sort of evolution of this kind of genre fiction over time. But I just think the weird tale is, it speaks to me (laughs) personally.
2: I think it does. It does me too. It, it, It does me too.
0: So this book is
1: about women writing in this genre. And, you know, in previous episodes, Claire, where we featured women, science fiction, had a conversation about science fiction and like, these dystopian times uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we had a this really wonderful conversation about how, you know, especially my personal passion for science fiction comes from understanding that marginalized voices can envelop their personal experiences within mm. fantasy, within genre, within science fiction. And today we've learned within horror and spooky tales mm. and from the stories that we've selected today and what we've read so far, that seems to be very true. It seems like a true woman experience can be found inside these pages, ever so subtle and other times not so subtle.
0: Yeah, I think that, Anar, both your story and my story are really different, but really striking examples of woman as monster which makes perfect Mm -hmm. sense because given the era (laughs) I think that you know women even just not being treated equally in society are given this kind of stigma as being sort of less human and that might not have been a, a term anyone would have used at the time certainly not but that's what it essentially means is Less than. So I think that the possibilities are really delicious in exposing and also turning it into like these horror fantasies of like what that actually meant to these women who lived during that time. It's real, that's really scary. That part of it is really scary, actually. Absolutely. Have I ever told you guys? I'm going to go on a small tangent. (laughs) (laughs) Have I ever told you guys about the Glore Psychiatric Museum in my hometown?
2: Glore or gore?
0: Glore. Okay. I know. Um, There is a psychiatric museum in my hometown that is in an old defunct asylum. And in it, I have toured it. There are a lot of quote unquote medical instruments, many of which were specifically for women. Or the stories on the placards on the walls are about women, you know, being put in these cages and all these other things. it's just really horrible, really terrible stuff. So when you think about something like that, that's like, that's real life. It could easily be in one of these stories, but it's real life. You walk in there and then you really feel like, oh... That's right, I step back in time. I am having like my normal anxiety attacks that I have on the regular basis. Someone thinks I have hysteria, they put me in that cage hanging from the ceiling and spin me around, you know? I mean, it's, it's it gets really fantastical really fast. So <laughs> yeah, really. that kind of terror is, is very real.
1: Yeah, I, as a fan of vintage style of, you know, old music, classic films, um, you know, sometimes, You're hanging with your friends and you're like, if you could be born in any era, when would it be? And it's just like, um, (laughs) it's 2021 and women are still treated like trash. And this is
0: not a great Um, time to be alive, let's be honest. Yeah,
1: but at (laughs) least you're not basically having your gut centrifuged while they're in your body. Yeah,
0: because you cried or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's true
1: horror Mm -hmm. and
0: I feel like
1: these writers really do capture kind of what it's like to you know at least Claire in your story and my story we see what it's like for men to just completely remove a woman's requests and needs and just see Mm -hmm. them as objects and completely just put upon them who they believe they are. We mentioned it the other day, a couple of guys in these stories remind us of all of our ex-boyfriends, and there is a
0: reason why they are (laughs) ex-boyfriends.
2: Ex-boyfriends.
0: Yeah, that's, you want to talk about scary. (laughs) Nobody wants to see that line up.
1: Well, since we're talking about the ex-boyfriends that I just mentioned, had a fuck boy vibes of just like (laughs) if you don't know what that is that's usually just guys that like don't see you for who you are reject a certain fantasy um are non-committal yet require all of your attention just like even have kind of like a like a player vibe but you're just Mm -hmm. like but you're a loser so this doesn't make any sense um yeah you know just like a guy that is just bad news and you can't shake them mm-hmm. off. Um, and so in the story that I read for today's podcast, I read The Canal by Everell Whirl, and it's actually one of her most popular short stories and was like later made and adapted to television for Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Oh. Um, so I am going to try to find that online later today. That's cool. Um, she was a prolific writer and... She studied music, voice, literature, English and psychology and afterwards went on to work for the US government as a secretary and stenographer. She was just kind of like a very talented artist. She was a writer, musician, painter, Mm -hmm. which like I absolutely love when people have like so many different skills that they bring to the table. Um, But she had a ton of fans and they often found her work in weird tales, which brings us to this beautiful anthology. And so The Canal was one of the most popular pieces she wrote when searching Everell Whirl, One of the top hits is, is there such a thing as too goth? Which is (laughs) a great question to ask. But yeah, after reading The Canal, it makes total sense as to like, what excites people about Everell Whirl's writing Claire, I mentioned to you the other day that like, the writers in this anthology, there's this skill to their writing that you only develop when you sit down and you write every single day. And yeah,
2: right, right. About
1: work, like there's just such a natural air and sophistication and just like ease to her writing, um, and it's beautiful. It's really captivating and I felt mm-hmm. that way through all of the stories that we read throughout the book, but I definitely just had to say that she makes her writing seem so effortless. And mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that about reading the canal.
0: I have to agree with you. I think that Everell Worl is my favorite writer of the four in this book, to be honest. I liked her writing style the most. Yeah. There's a lot of great stories in here, but Yeah, her writing style does have this effortlessness to it that maybe is indicative of writing every day. I mean, I don't know. If you write for these pulp magazines, you probably have to produce a lot of content. And I assume that these women probably had to work really hard to get published and taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And many of them didn't really have their own books. They had to get published in the magazines. And yeah, I'm just assuming that she had to work really hard and write every day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's th- that's what I sensed, and that's what I hope is true. You know, we live in a meritocracy, um, mm-hmm. and I hope that working really hard reflects great work, but I do think that a lot of the people who publish short stories and magazines in that era um, just kind of pumped them out. But yeah. For today, I read The Canal, and it's basically a vampire story, and We feature a girl vampire, which is really unexpected and I really loved. And so we have this girl who's a monster and then we've got just a guy who projects onto her his feelings and the rest is history. It doesn't end well. I will make (laughs) y'all buy the book or learn more on your own because I don't want to spoil Mm -hmm. because it is just so much fun to read but would you like me to read you a little passage yes please 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 um so this is after he sees her is curious and basically falls in love with her and he's basically like i want to be with you (laughs) and she's like "Mm, no not right now (laughs) okay The resentment vanished from my breast, and I felt my heart go out to her anew. She was so pale, so pitiful in the night. My eyes were learning better, and better how to pierce the darkness. They were giving me a more definite picture of my companion. If I could think of her as a companion, between myself and whom stretched the black water. The sadness of the lonely scene, the perfection of the solitude itself, these things contributed to her pitifulness. Then there was the strangeness of atmosphere of which even I had only partly taken note. There was a strange shivering chill, which I yet did not seem like the helpful chill, healthful chill of a cool evening. In fact, it did not prevent me from feeling the oppression of the night, which was unusually sultry. It was like a little breath of deadly cold that came and went, and yet did not alter the temperature of the air itself, as the small ripples on the surface of water do not concern the water even a foot down. And even then, that was not all. There was an unwholesome smell about the night, a dank, moldy smell that might have been the very breath of death and decay. Even I, the connoisseur in all things dismal and unwholesome, tried to keep my mind from dwelling overmuch upon that smell. What it must be to live breathing it constantly in, I could not think. But no doubt the girl and her father were used to it, and no doubt it came from the stagnant water of the canal and from the rotting wood of the old, half-sunken boat that was their refuge. My heart throbbed with pity again. Their refuge, what a place! And my clear vision of the girl showed me that she was pitifully thin, even though possessed of the strange face that drew me to her. Her clothes hung around like old rags, but hers was no scarecrow aspect. Although little flesh clothed her bones, her very bones were beautiful. I was sure the little pale heart-shaped face would be more beautiful still if I could only see it more closely. I must see it closely. I must establish some claim to consideration as a friend of the strange, lonely crew of the half-sunken wreck.
2: Wow. That
0: was a great great passage to read from the story. Yeah. Uh you know, the term the male gaze comes to mind.
1: Mm. Mhm. Yeah, and you know, just as a woman, I was just like this is how I've felt that I've been seen. <laughs> um it was just the eyes of so many men that I have known or witnessed through film and like television. It just felt so true and it's just amazing that it has been true since at least the 1920s and yes, yeah we we hear from him exactly how he sees her and Mm. I would love to hear the other side of the story Mm -hmm. of what maybe the vampire herself felt his eyes like as he scanned her Um,
2: well what's wonderful to me you know really is how Absolutely wrong he is.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so no spoilers here, but this isn't exactly what she's like.
2: <laughs> yeah. He's he's like, hey, there's a girl over there with a really pretty face and she's kind of wan and helpless and Ooh, I've fallen in love with her because I like the dismal things and we're in a dismal canal and I'm attracted to her. And just, you know, like you said, Anar, her response when he says, you know, I want to come over, I want to be with you, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, no. Yep. No. And I'm not coming to you either and uh, not happening.
0: I love that he is expressing his attraction to her and of course at this point in the story we don't know exactly what she's like so right we don't know that it's she's different from this but his attraction is expressed in a way that seems like he's focusing on her pitifulness mm-hmm. and she uses that word a couple of times mm-hmm. and i just feel mm-hmm. like that's really striking too that it's i don't know if a male writer would have would have gone that far because it makes him look kind of creepy and and -hmm. and awful (laughs) even though she's the monster
1: (laughs) and you know we think about the word pitiful and you know the word power or power dynamics come to mind and that like you know he's weird he's into the Mm -hmm. macabre he's lonely we realize that he's extremely lonely and he has zero power in his life. He has zero influence. Yeah. And so he's allured by this character that he thinks he can overcome physically <laughs> and mentally. And, you know, no one's smarter than this guy. I'm going to tell you that right now.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, from page one of this story, he's an odd character. Mm-hmm. He's antisocial. He doesn't hang around with other people. He likes to be in the dark. He likes to explore cemeteries, all kinds of stuff like that. And so it's like, oh, I've found my true love here in a swamp. (laughs) (laughs) And he's going to rescue her. He's going to rescue her from the barge. And she's a femme fatale. She's like, you know, Rapunzel, let down your hair. A scary woman, put down a, a plank so I can come over to the boat. No, not so much.
0: I mean, we've alluded to the fact that she is not exactly how he is perceiving her in this passage. And without giving too much away about that, I think that in in the end, you know, she she does disgust us. Right. Mm -hmm. Even even us, (laughs) you know, and not just him and. I wonder if there's a kind of I think you could do a feminist reading if you really want oh, yeah. to about impurity. And I think he's seeing like he mentions her uh, paleness and pitifulness and helplessness. And I think he's mm-hmm. he's imagining some kind of purity there that doesn't exist. Um, and I think that the story just slowly like he slowly realizes her quote unquote impurity until it gets to the you know climax of the story and um that's kind of a cool way to think about these monsters too is that they really disrupt that idea of feminine purity
2: oh yeah and the idea of him wanting to rescue her and make her his so she's going to be a tool of him towards his fulfillment and. You know, you can expect, you know, as we've said, things don't turn out like he expects. So, you know, basically she's tooling him. And in such a subtle way that she just she just plays.
0: It's
1: great. Joe, your key word just now, tool, I feel like it's a great segue into Claire's story where we basically have a woman.
0: It was a prop mm-hmm. Claire would you like to introduce so yeah my story is by Grey Lespina, who was an American author born in 1880 and she lived until 1969 so wow. we have these women writers who I like need their beauty secrets I'm sure they bathed in the blood of teenage boys or something which I'm getting to an age-rare. that's not off the table um, She <laughs> published more than a hundred short stories, serials, uh, novellas, and one-act plays in her lifetime. Um, her stories often appeared in pulp magazines like Weird Tales, and she had one novel that was published as a standalone book in her lifetime um she lived to be 89 years old and she published one novel invaders from the dark published by arkham house in 1960 and in the introduction the writer says that she was uh, born in massachusetts and worked in new york city as a photographer and stenographer which is interesting that evra warrell was also a stenographer Um, And she ended up in a small town in Pennsylvania where she took up weaving as a hobby. So she also had other (laughs) art forms that she engaged with. Um, And so the story that I'm going to talk about is the first one in this book. It's called The Remorse of Professor Pana Bianco. And I feel like I have a really good sense of her as a writer after reading it. Um, Something that really struck me about it is that it's short it's quite short and she really gets right down to business (laughs) the story starts in the middle and it doesn't take long to get to the climax so it's really efficient and i really enjoyed that that element to her writing i think some of the other like Everell Worrell and, and some of the other writers in this book have a little more fluff and aura and stuff around the edges of the story. But Gray Lispina really seems like the kind of writer who just gets right to it. (laughs) I enjoyed that writing style. So this is essentially a mad scientist tale. And the mad scientist is Italian. And I think that's funny because her second husband was Italian.
2: <laughs> so
0: I can't help but like is this essentially a portrait of her husband and her relationship because the one of the other main characters in the story is the mad scientist's wife. So that's just a little speculation, but this mad scientist, he's called the professor in the story and he is explaining to a doctor friend of his this new experiment that he is absolutely dying to try and it seems like this is his heart's passion. The doctor is skeptical because this experiment is quite edgy, perhaps even criminal. So I'm just going to read a little passage in which we get the gist of this science experiment and in which we meet the wife, whose name is Elena. So the professor is explaining his experiment to the doctor, and the doctor asks, "'Exactly what do you wish to do, and how is this bell to serve you?' inquired the doctor, a puzzled series of lines drawing across his forehead. "'I have observed, caro mio, that the vaporous soul of the lower animal is so much lighter than the ether around it that it withstands the pull of gravity and rises, swaying with whatever currents of air are in the atmosphere, always to a higher level where it dissipates into invisibility.' I have been trying to possess myself of a living human being whose life was useless to the world, that his death might be made of transcendent value through my scientific knowledge. I constructed this crystal bell for a wonderful and stupendous purpose. It is intended to hold the tenuous wraith of the subject of my experiment. The valve above, open at first, will permit the air to escape at the top of the bell as it becomes displaced by the ascending essence of the dying man's soul. Then when I pull the chain, thereby closing the valve, the soul would be retained by its own volatile nature within the bell, being unable to seek a lower level. Filippo, you astound me. There was something more than astonishment in the doctor's face, however, and his eyes searched the countenance of the professor's sharply. My idea is indeed awe-inspiring, Caro de Torre. Your wonder is very natural, said the professor graciously. It must be trying to have to wait so long for a suitable subject for your experiment, ventured the doctor with a side glance. Ah, how well I shall love and venerate that human being who furnishes me with such a subject, cried the professor fervently. A deep sigh followed closely upon his words. The curtain hanging before the doorway was pushed to one side as Elena Panabianco walked slowly into the room. "'How you will gaze upon that imprisoned soul!' cried she, with a passionate intensity that startled the doctor anew, as he turned his regard from her husband to her. "'If it were a soul that loved you, how happy it would be to know that your entire thoughts were centered upon it, within the crystal bell, to see your eyes always fixed upon it as it floated there within.' She leaned weakly against the dissecting table, and her great eyes, dark with melancholic emotion, stared wildly out of her thin, fever-flushed face. "'To say impossible,' cried the professor. "'What tragic jealousy is yours, Elena, a jealousy of things that do not as yet exist?' Oof. Yes. I really like this passage. I love her entrance. It's very cinematic. (laughs) (laughs)
2: yes yes um
0: you know to to contrast my story to inars this woman in this tale has no power seemingly she is on the verge of death very sickly she is desperate for her husband's affections and attentions and yet he is the classic mad scientist throwing himself into his work he couldn't care less about what she wants clearly he finds her kind of annoying as the story (laughs) goes on Um, It's really sad. She's a really tragic figure and very ghostly from the beginning. You can can kind of already feel death on her. So, yeah, I think that in a way it's a really harsh portrayal of a jealous and scorned woman who is desperate for affection. And I find that really fascinating to think about from the perspective of a woman writer who is perhaps exposing a little bit of the the power dynamics in a marriage, maybe, I don't know. Her mm-hmm. husband was Italian, so I can't help but think that there's there's some correlation there between this story and her own marriage, which is sad. Yeah.
1: I, I love that you use the word cinematic because this, it starts in media res, which is like, it just drops you into the story. It's basically from beginning to end, just one one scene, you know, it all happens mm-hmm. so quickly. Yes, um, And the way that this character, Elena, is written reminds me of just like, you know, I'm a huge classic film buff and it just feels like every woman character that was written for the screen and performed for the screen from those classic noir films um, mm-hmm. where she's just so hysterical and you have to shake her to <laughs> get her to snap out of it.
0: Um hmm. But she wants a kiss. She wants a kiss? She just wants a kiss.
2: She wants, she wants him to look at her. Yeah. She would be very happy, even if he were objectifying her, like in the former story, he'd at least be looking at her. And he, mm-hmm. he has, yeah. in this story, he has no desire beyond anything except his fame. Mm-hmm. That's what he wants. He wants everybody to be jealous of him he's the center of everything and it's just, that's his drive. That's the only reason he's doing this. It's not for the betterment of mankind or anything like that. It's I'm going to be on top. Yeah. He says
0: it to the doctor and also the nature of his experiment, which is of course so fantastical and almost funny that he's trying to catch a human soul in this bell in this glass bell. Um, Mm -hmm. But The idea that he wants to possess another human being's soul. He wants to take the thing that floats out of a body and evaporates and is a total mystery, and he wants to make it something knowable and concrete and controllable.
2: Right. Well, he wants to take the butterfly and pin it to the wall and frame it.
0: Yes, essentially. But there's so much I would like to say about the story that would give away the ending, I think.
2: I think you can say a lot about the story without giving away the ending. Uh, Yeah. You know, one of the things that I thought at the beginning when I was reading this story is that the professor has brought this doctor here to use him in his experiment. And that's why you get the side glance. That's why you get this and this, that, and the other. And it's like, wait a second. You want to put me in that thing, don't you? <laughs> and then we get, you know, we get the switch. We get the switch. And I think Elena, she, she rolls the dice. She puts everything on the line for her love of this madman. You know, she puts everything on the line. And mm-hmm. I can't help going back to, you know, the Bible. And you got Abraham and Isaac, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. But it's not God telling Abraham that he's got to kill Isaac. It's this guy's pride. This is a very, although it's a very short story, like you said, it is very resonant of so much psychology and play, and it's just so tightly wrought. I think it's one of the best stories in the book because it's just so compressed.
0: And to bring it back to kind of the parameters of like, what is a weird tale? And where is the weirdness coming in? Where's the metaphysical or the monstrosity coming in? Well, part of it is coming in through the professor's sick desire for this experiment. He literally wants to kill someone whose life he thinks is useless. He even Mm -hmm. mentions potentially using a prisoner. So there's like a conversation there oh yeah he's
2: very very angry at the prison that they won't give him somebody
0: to kill yeah um gosh and and then part of the monstrosity comes through in in elena because she is this tragic figure Mm -hmm. who is sickly and desperate for attention and is is willing to do anything to get her husband's attention. And I think she's portrayed as a kind of a monster too. But in the end, which I won't give away, I think she wins. So mm. that is a is a weird take on what happens. Oh yeah. But I yeah. think she wins because she can't be controlled any longer. And she becomes the mystery, you know. So anyway, I do think it's a really fascinating, sh- super short story. Like you said, Joe, a lot happens in just a few pages, and c- you could write you could write a couple of of critical papers on it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good story. I really, really enjoyed that one.
1: Thank you for putting it on our radar, Claire. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's talk
0: about Eli Coulter now.
2: Yeah, Eli Coulter, one of the longer stories in the mm-hmm. book. Uh, the Curse of a Song. First, let me tell you a little bit about Eli Coulter. She's a very interesting woman. She went blind when she was 13 and then recovered. It's just amazing. You think back to diseases and medicine back in the at the turn of the 20th century. You know, she's 13. That would have been about 1903. They didn't know why she went blind, but it came back, you know. Which is great. And you know, and she she decided at that moment that she would become a writer. And obviously <laughs> she self-taught because she's a woman. She's from the West. She was born in Portland, Oregon, which is really the wild west back in those days. Yeah. And so she starts writing, but she supports herself. She's an organist. And she supports herself by playing the organ in silent movie houses. You know, which which is so really cool. really kind of a cool thing to do. But it's not until 1922, she's 32 years old, she gets her first story published. You know, and she becomes tremendously popular. You know, she, uh, there was one year that one of her stories was second only to H.P. Lovecraft in the popularity of stories that had been published over the past year. And so... Uh, this, you know, she ends up writing not only uh, not only weird tales, but she she moves on in the, after the nineteen thirties or mid nineteen thirties, and she starts writing westerns, and uh, she just cranks out the westerns, and one of them is actually made into a movie. I don't think it's a big time movie or anything like that, but uh, it has Gabby Hayes in it, but. Uh, it's the only only name I recognized. but in,
0: these women were all so prolific.
2: Yes, yes. And then you know, after the 1950s, she kind of moves into her private life, and uh, you know, it's not not much known about her, you know, but by 1952 or 53 she's 63, 64 you know she can retire, she can retire. <laughs> You know, and again, she lives a nice long life. She lives until 1984. So she's 94 when she dies.
0: What was their secret, Joe?
2: Yeah. Oh, there's a web page with her picture on it. And she's quite the uh, beauty for a 1920s woman. And, uh, you know, playing the organ and uh, writing these stories. She and her husband, her second husband, uh, started a writing kind of retreat out west and Mm -hmm. you know many people would go there and they'd write you know genre fiction and uh things like that so let's talk a little bit about the story the curse of the song is uh fun it's it's a curse story there's a curse there's a ghost it's a love story it's it's just kind of all twisted up together, and it's all there. I guess you could call this a generational curse. Mm-hmm. This poor guy, this poor guy, he's he's going to marry this girl, but this actor comes to town, and he comes and visits the girl, and you know nobody thinks anything of it, but he's like, nah, I don't know, this is my girl. So, well, one day he comes to her house unannounced, and... She's sitting at the organ playing a Love's Old Sweet Song, which is an actual song. I was curious it's, about that. You know, one of those eighteen eighties type. It's very sentimental. And later in the story, when the song appears again, you know, the narrator or somebody comments, why are they singing such an old fashioned out-of-style song? You know, because this is this is written in nineteen twenty eight, <laughs> you know. But uh So he sees her playing the organ and then saying something to this actor. And he thinks, of course, they're having an affair or something like that. And he storms out and disappears. Of course, they weren't having an affair. The actor was just helping her learn some lines for a uh, show that they're going to put on. But he disappeared. They can't find him. He's nowhere, nowhere be found. Eventually, this guy's brother goes west, goes to Portland and finds him. You know, just happens upon him. and Mm -hmm. But he doesn't remember anything. He doesn't remember anything. And, you know, the brother tries to remind him and starts hanging around with him. But he's got a different personality and, you know, has quite lost his mind. But then, one night, they're sitting in a bar. And a uh, a drunk goes up to an organ in the bar and plays Love's Old Sweet Song and starts singing. (laughs) And it's... It's like the old gag, slowly I turn. Well, all of a sudden, this guy's mm-hmm. eyes light up. He remembers everything and empties his revolver into the man singing the song. Ends up in an insane <laughs> asylum. But then whenever he hears the song or sees his brother, he freaks out you know, and goes mad. And, but he ends up in an insane asylum and on his deathbed curses the brother. Well, as I said, this is a generational curse. Mm -hmm. The brother's youngest daughter is the only one who believes in this curse. And things go bad. Let me read (laughs) you the section where the youngest daughter, Rose, sets eyes on the man that she immediately falls in love with and uh, vice versa. This is the narrator. It's a frame, frame story. This guy's telling a story. I heard the voice and turned to see her coming down the stairs, Rose, arm in arm with the other girl. The girl was telling Rose about Murray Fielding, how fine-looking he was, what a nice fellow, you know, came from a splendid family, was decorated in the war, and all the things girls say about men when they want to interest another girl. I grinned up at them. They were about halfway down the stairs, and they were making no effort to lower their voices. Just then, Murray himself came into the hall, paused by the table where the punch bowls stood, and began to ladle out a glassful of punch. Rose's friend hailed him gaily. He looked up, smiled at her, and his glance passed to Rose. Just at that precise moment, three or four of the girls in the room beyond began to bang on the piano and sing Love's Old Sweet Song. I started and shot a glance at Rose. She went white and stopped short on the stairs, staring at Murray Fielding, because in that instant, she knew that Murray was the one man for whom she was intended. And she heard the wailing of that song behind him he put down the ladle and glass he held staring back at her puzzled and amazed by the look on her face and the pallor knowing also that she was the one girl for him rose's friend knew all about the curse and even had a romantic respect for it but she didn't believe in it she took rose by the arm drew her down into the hall And introduced Murray Fielding to her. So there they are. The moment they meet, they fall instantly in love when they see each other. But the curse is there. And the curse manifests itself that when the song is sung, the ghost of Thad appears. And he's going to haunt them and terrorize Mm -hmm. them. And the reason he's haunting Rose is because Rose believes it. But... He, he really has nothing against Rose. He wants to get back at his brother. He wants to get back at his brother, uh, Grant, who he had cursed. So there are all these levels working together, and they decide, you know, Murray decides that he's going to defeat the ghost, but he needs her to do it, and it's a wonderful climax to the story. And, you know, intricately woven between, as I said, a love story, a ghost story, a curse story, and, you know, this very sentimental uh, love song. And it's just all kinds of fun, all kinds of fun.
0: It really is. It needed to be as long as it is for the setup alone. Like you (laughs) said, there's so many layers to this story, and it doesn't feel pulp. Be in that way like it almost feels like the setup to a novel or something like yeah. this generational curse could have gone on and on
2: right right and you know it's, it's just so deep what happens and it's very you know it's, 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 it's a very well structured story and, and then there's a surprise with you know as I said it's a frame narrative of one man telling another man a story in New York City And, uh, you know, because, you know, one believes in curses, one doesn't. And he says, oh, let me tell you about this curse. (laughs) You'll believe in curses. (laughs) But the frame story even has a conclusion to it, which is actually the biggest surprise in the story. Yeah. You know, and I won't give it away whether, whether everybody lives happily ever after because they might not they might not it's pretty (laughs) tense there for a while this ghost just keeps gaining in power every time they try to fight him triggered
0: it's a lot of crazy guys you know even murray the love interest rose's love interest he's kind of a crazy guy Mm -hmm. in more of a hero's way but Didn't you have the sense that you felt this like fragile young woman just being sort of pulled at in all these directions? (laughs) Even the narrator, who is a friend of hers, but would have loved to be more than a friend at one point and just keeps hanging around, which Mm -hmm. is really sweet and, and tender. But at the same time, it's like he wants something from her, even though he just wants to protect her. Like there's a sort of subtext to it as well. And I found that really fascinating that it's a story in which there's this young woman who's just caught in a web of, right, you know, all these different right. male figures who are are pulling her in different directions. And one of them is a ghost <laughs> 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 who really wants to hurt her. <laughs> I, I still don't know how I feel about, like, how much agency does she have?
2: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's uh, the depiction of her as opposed to her brothers who go off and have a life but she's the youngest daughter and of course she believes in the curse and it you know it affects her and uh, i do feel like she's just there You know, she has to, you know, she has to show some spying at the end because they're fighting against the ghost. But it's like every time she hears this song, it's like, you know, she just goes catatonic.
1: Something that really stuck to me about the story that feels so true to life is that we choose what has power over us. Mm -hmm. Um, And her belief in... The curse and in the ghost uh, fed this fear and fed the curse. And it was just like the more you believe, the worse it's going to get for you. You know, as just a creative that struggles with anxiety, it is so true. You just generate your own doubts and your own fears sometimes in ways that completely destroy your life exactly
2: exactly and
1: take hold of your life and i'm so curious if there was a follow-up to this story like who would rose be if she was able to gain control of her fears um and maybe that's why she feels kind of like a non-entity in this story because she's just you know
0: she's a vessel of fear yeah
2: right when you when you think about Rose that way and the way that we've been talking about her, this is kind of a bro story. It's, it's, it's all it the bros. It's a couple <laughs> of bros telling the story. It's about...
0: And they're nice bros.
2: Yeah, they're nice bros. The only they're one who's not nice is Thad. Yeah, Thad. Right. You know, he sucks. He jumps to conclusions <laughs> and, you know, ruins his life. But obviously there's some madness going on in his head before that. But... You know, it's, it's, it's him, it's his brother, it's, you know, it's the Wild West. There are sections in it where it said, oh, so-and-so Murray or somebody went out to Portland and the, the West to build a new life for themselves as the, as the city itself grew. And they were cutting down forests and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a very guy story.
0: But the person being haunted is a woman. And I think that's interesting. And I think it's interesting that she's literally haunted by the past. I mean, right. it's a generational curse. Mm-hmm. She's haunted by the rage and jealousy and possessiveness of a male relative. Right. It's. I don't think it, the story is trying to do some feminist critique on anything. Mm-hmm. I just think that it's interesting to think about it in that way, that she is not a character with agency she's not the monster in the story right but she is the conduit for the metaphysical and i think that's kind right. of a that's kind of a trend among our stories is that the female character and it is a singular female character yeah. in all cases is the conduit for the metaphysical um but it mm-hmm. doesn't that that part of it doesn't really feel like an accident to me
2: yeah i just think that you know she is the tool that that the ghost is going to use to get back at his brother because the brother loves her, you know, she's his favorite child.
0: Yeah. It was a wild ride. I made an audible sound. I don't remember if it was a laugh or a snort or what at the last line. Mm-hmm. Last night, mm-hmm. I just guffawed or something because it was like, what? You gotta be kidding me. I for- I actually forgot about the framing device. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's,
2: it's like, wow.
1: Uh, well... I'm just so grateful for this collection. Um, it's pushing us into the spooky season. Little snippets, little short stories is such a great way to like. You just read one a
0: night. Yeah. It's so satisfying. Yeah. It's perfect. I've really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah. yeah and Valancourt
0: too. Books is a, it's a new press to me, and they publish a lot of cool spooky stuff a lot of victorian and horror genre stuff um joe you you just recently got a bunch of their books for for the store right
2: yeah yeah uh and a lot of books by women yes they have a lot of uh the horror genre and and gothic genre it's their specialty but you know especially things written by women they have a long list yeah. of those. And it's very exciting to start getting those into Malvern.
0: It's really exciting because the Monster She Wrote series specifically, as we said at the beginning, resurrects those those titles written by women in genre fiction. But it's also cool because like in this collection, in the introduction, they mentioned that a lot of these stories are lost because they were just published in Weird Tales. And oh, yeah. they didn't get books, uh, you know, some anthologies were made at the time, but they weren't meant to be like representative of everything that was going on. And so it's rare to, to come across some of these writers, especially these women writers work. So it's a real mm-hmm. treasure, real spooky treasure,
2: real spooky treasure. Well, thanks for getting together and talking about these spooky books. I love being on the host dispatch podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me along. Thanks, and, Joe. Uh, I like spooky stories, so that was fun.
0: Yeah, it's like our favorite. It's like our favorite episode of the year, I think.
2: Yeah, 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 definitely one of my favorites. Definitely one of my favorites.
0: Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Bye.
2: Bye.